This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Future Proof by Stephen McAlpine. Stephen McAlpine is an Australian writer and speaker who specializes in cultural engagement and the church. His new book, Future Proof, is now available. McAlpine encourages readers that we have been given everything we need in Christ to thrive in a post-Christian cultural landscape. Visit thegoodbook.com future to find this book and other resources that will help you engage with the culture in a thoughtful and biblical way and use code FUTURE at checkout to receive 25% off. That's thegoodbook.com slash future. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of The Christmas Promise, a beautifully illustrated Bible storybook for kids aged 2 to 6. More information at thegoodbook.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Today's podcast is a talk by Trevin Wax on signs of hope for the next generation. It was recorded at our 2019 National Pre-Conference in Indianapolis. The Apostle Paul writes this, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, as Paul looked out from that prison cell and as he uh, considered those beloved believers, he knew one thing for sure. Grace finishes what grace starts. The God who saves his people is the God who will sustain his people. And Paul's confidence was was not in the the signs of hope that he saw in the Philippian congregation. Although you read the letter, he found many signs of hope, many reasons to be encouraged. But his ultimate hope was in God. He believed that God would carry on to completion the work that he had begun in the Philippians. The title of this uh, talk as we close this pre-conference is looking for signs of hope uh, when we consider the, the next generation. And I think it's, it's dangerous to look at the next generation and see only signs of hope, just as it would be dangerous to look at the next generation and see only causes for alarm. Every generation faces its, chair, its, its share of challenges and opportunities. Oftentimes, the opportunity is in the challenge. It's also dangerous to, to assume that the next generation is going to to come along and fix all the things that the the previous generation got wrong. I think that's a a common tendency among young people uh, to sing along with John Mayer that we're waiting for the world to change. 
uh, hoping to finally get our time in the driver's seat. Why? Because, well, then the, the wars would all be over and we'd make everything right again. But if you consider the history of the world and, and even the history of the church, you find that often when young people seek to, to correct the errors that they see so clearly in their elders, they wind up fixing some things, but then they wind up messing up a lot of other things. And then the, the next generation has to come along and, and fix a different set of messes. So no generation is the greatest or the last hope for Christianity because generations aren't where we put our hope anyway. The God of the gospel is our hope. The resurrection power of Jesus is our hope. The indwelling of the Spirit is our hope. So this morning, I've been given the task and the privilege to, to close this pre-conference on the family by, by offering signs of hope for the next generation. And as, as I look out over the, the landscape of evangelicalism and, and see trends and surveys and, and talk to church leaders who are, who are seeing some success in reaching uh, younger people, I have just a few observations that give me hope because these, these are evidences of the Lord's work in our day. And I have confidence that the God who has started to work in us will bring it to completion. Okay, so first sign of hope that I see would be this. Younger Christians expect to be a countercultural minority. Younger Christians expect to be a countercultural minority. Now, let me give you some context for this, for this statement. You, you may be aware uh, that the, the number of people who identify as Christian in the United States has been declining. Uh, Pew Research shows a drop in the percentage of people who, who claim Christian on their survey of religion. And you see this contrast especially when you, when you compare the difference between uh, baby boomers and uh, millennials. Um, so nearly nine out of 10 baby boomers describe themselves as Christian. The number is just 67% among millennials. In some surveys, it's even lower than that. And then the, the, the iGen or Gen Z or whatever we're gonna call the generation coming up behind the millennials is even lower than that. Now, I know you may be thinking, Okay, Trevin, so how is this a sign of hope, right? Sounds like more of a challenge. Well, it depends on how you look at it. Because even amid this decline, the percentage of the population that attends church regularly has remained stable. That means we're not seeing this massive decrease in devotion among Christians. What we're seeing is a massive decline in nominal Christianity. We're seeing the, the disappearance of a cultural Christianity or, or the idea that, that Christian is, is the, the default option for most Americans. Now, why would that be a sign of hope? It's certainly a challenge, but I think the, the sign of hope here comes for two reasons. First, many church leaders will tell you that it's actually easier to have spiritual conversations with people who, who know they're not Christian than with people who think they're Christian but show no evidence of salvation. The saying among, among uh, uh, pastors laboring in parts of the Bible Belt is that before you can see people get saved, you've got to get them lost. Right? The, the confusion of Christianity as the, as the default option, the, the, the prevalence of a cultural Christianity, it can actually hinder, can actually obscure the true gospel and make conversion more, 
more difficult, more, those conversations harder to, to have. So that's one reason I, I see this as a, a sign of hope. A second reason that this is a sign of hope is because I believe it leads the, the next generation away from assuming that the best way to affect change in society is through political involvement. I've often said that older evangelicals tend to see America as Israel, whereas younger evangelicals tend to see America as Babylon. Now, neither of those tendencies, when, when pushed too far, are, are healthy. But I'm encouraged to see a younger generation ready to deal with many issues from a pastoral perspective rather than through a political lens. Now, listen, we're always going to be involved in both, right? Christians and their, and their vocations are going to be involved in both uh, pastoral ministry, one to another, and also political engagement. And the reason is, is because both of these are spheres in which we are called to, to love our neighbors. But, but the next generation's assumption, expectation, that we will be a countercultural minority especially in regards to moral matters, sexuality, things like this, to me, that's a sign of hope. It's a sign of hope because it's a sign that we're bracing for a future in which we know, we expect, we assume that we're going to stand out more than ever. It's better for us to move forward with the proper assumptions and expectations than it would be for us to, to have the wrong expectations and assumptions. So those are two reasons why this, this understanding, this idea that younger evangelicals, uh, younger Christians expect to be a countercultural minority is a sign of hope. A second sign of hope. Young people thrive in churches that do the best job with the basics. Young people thrive in churches that do the best job with the basics. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, there was a, a LifeWay research study recently that investigated what parenting practices were most common in the families where young adults remained in the faith. They were looking, they were asking questions, you know, what, what affected the, the moral and spiritual development of children and teenagers? What, what factors stood out? And there's, there's a lot there that was uncovered in that research study, and you can find the results in a book called Nothing Less if you want to get in, in more detail there. But uh, the, the big finding was that children who remained faithful as young adults, meaning they identified as a Christian, uh, they would share their faith, remain in church, read the Bible, so on, these common practices related to Christianity, they, they grew up in homes where certain practices were present. And, and here, here's why I, I find this to be a sign of hope. All the practices were basic. They were basic Christian practices. It's not because of the, the, the coolness of the worship band or, or, or the type of church building or, or the facility or, or you know, the size of the, the youth ministry. It all came down to basic Christian practices. And I find this to be a sign of hope because it means the basics are still the basics. Let me show you what some of them were. The, the biggest factor was Bible reading. Bible reading. Children who regularly read the Bible while growing up were more likely to have a vibrant spiritual life as they became adults. Now, surely this statistic doesn't surprise us, right? Because God's Word is powerful, right? And the practice of, of Bible reading, that's a constant reminder. When we go to the Scriptures daily, 
on a regular basis. That's a constant reminder that we live as followers of God. Our king has spoken. He reigns over us. We want to, to walk in his ways. That's deeply formative. There's a book uh, by a number of researchers called Growing Young, which presents findings from churches that have seen success in reaching young people and equipping young people. And, and what was interesting about their study is that you find in these churches an emphasis on the Bible as a redemptive narrative, where the focus in Bible study is on interpreting each part of the Bible within the whole unfolding story of God and his people. To me, that's a, a sign of hope. I mean, I'm, as someone who's devoted, a, devoted several years now to the Gospel Project, that's a, a curriculum that specializes in the grand narrative. I mean, it warms my heart. It makes me get excited when I read a statement like this that from, from that book, Growing Young. It says, churches that communicate the gospel of Jesus as the centerpiece of God's story are more likely to have young people with greater faith, vibrancy, and maturity. What's more, those who talk about the gospel in narrative terms also tend to rate their churches higher on teaching people how to interact with culture, and they rate themselves personally higher on responding to current social issues in light of faith. So what you have there is the development of a Christian worldview that takes place with Bible reading at the center and Christ-centered Bible reading at the center of that Bible reading. So that's one of the basics that gives me hope. A couple of other factors were in the, the LifeWay Research uh, uh, study um, closely behind Bible reading came prayer, service in the church. In, in the practice of prayer, it didn't specify whether it was private or corporate, be before meals or before bedtime or in the morning, but prayer was present. Um, when it talks about service in the church, I do think it's interesting that the research found it to be service in the church, not just attendance. So it wasn't just that parents took their kids to church where professional clergy could feed them spiritually, but, but children and teenagers were included and integrated into the church through the, through the avenue of service. And so you've got this habit of serving Christ in the church and in the community, and it, it forms young Christians in a way that keeps us from identifying merely as a church-going consumer, someone who's in church just for, for what it might do for us. Instead, we, you see that in the research, these the young people seeing themselves as an integral part, contributing to the building up of God's people. And so down the list a little, church mission trips show up. And, but that's just another indicator of the active power of service. But again, one of the basics, Bible reading, prayer, service in the church. And then I, I'd also just point this out. Uh, I'm encouraged to see a hunger among young people for mentors and for intentional discipleship in smaller groups. You see this happening in different ways. I think Robbie Gallaty's uh, Replicate Ministry is a, is a good example. It's a recent movement that combines basic Christian practices in smaller groups, but all with this purpose of replicating and reproducing discipleship in the lives of others. I, I like what Robbie says. He says, discipleship must be the ministry of the church, not a ministry of the church, for a world-changing movement to emerge. And I don't see younger Christians resistant to that process at all. I see a hunger for that. So all of these are signs of hope. The basics of discipleship are still the basics. No matter what's taking place in our culture, in our world, the standard practices still serve us well. And I, I find that to be a sign of hope. One more sign I would point out to you, and then I'll just give a, a brief concern here. Uh, one more sign of hope would be this. Younger Christians are learning to distinguish the gospel from moralistic therapeutic deism. 
Younger Christians are learning to distinguish the gospel from moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, one of the findings in Growing Young, the book I mentioned earlier regarding churches that are reaching millennials, is that younger Christians say they want church leaders to take Jesus' message seriously. And in the study that they showed of these churches that are full of young people, they found that um, the young people in these churches did a better job than most at differentiating between a a moralistic understanding of the gospel or a therapeutic understanding of the gospel and the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they compare and they contrast the two. They say golden rule gospel that basically is emphasizing just right living, being nice to people instead of right believing. They say when in churches that are focused on the golden rule kind of gospel, the more moralistic understanding, what eventually happens is you wind up with a behavior modification that leaves Jesus out of the picture. But the good news in the research is that in these churches that are reaching college-age students and 24 to 29-year-olds, they found that only 5% of the students that they talked to, the, the young people that they talked to who were active in these churches, gave that kind of golden rule, moralistic-themed explanation of the gospel. So, so don't misunderstand me here. Uh, moralism continues to be a challenge for us in the culture and in the church but in churches that are reaching the next generation, it is not as prevalent as it is in other places. And that's a sign of hope to me because that means that the one thing that still engages young people is the one thing that makes Christianity distinct. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. That there's, there's a hunger for the teaching of Jesus, even if at times it might be seen as offensive or countercultural. Now, if I could offer a cause of concern here, it's this, and you may have seen some of the, the recent research findings about millennials and evangelism. Um, some of the headlines summed up a, a surprising finding that uh, came out in new research from Barna, where half of millennial Christians say it's wrong to evangelize. And these are church-going millennial Christians. Uh, nearly half, 47%, agreed with the following statement. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. I wasn't completely shocked or surprised by that statistic because the, the book I mentioned earlier, Growing Young, they found in their research as well, even among churches that were reaching and holding on to a lot of young people, they found this. They said the word evangelism and its derivatives were hardly mentioned by the young people in our study. Talking about faith with non-Christians was the least common practice among a list of variables related to faith maturity. Now, strangely enough, in the, the, the Barna survey I just mentioned, 96% of millennial Christians say being a witness about Jesus is an integral part of faith. So how does that work? 96% of millennial Christians say, yes, I'm to be a witness for Jesus. And then 47% say it would be wrong for me to try to press someone to, uh, to accept the claims of Christ. What does that mean? I, my guess is, that, is this. For many or for most of the respondents, being a witness about Jesus does not mean verbal evangelism. Millennials here be a witness and they don't think about witnessing. They think, I'm just going to live an exemplary life. You know, I'm going to, that's going to be my witness to Jesus. So when they say I'm being a witness for Jesus, they're not saying that verbally calling people to put their faith in Jesus Christ is a central part of the Christian life. No, what they're saying is I'm just going to represent Jesus to others in how I live. That's what's important. My life, not my words. 
And so that explains why 73% say that they're gifted at sharing their faith with other people. And you say, well, wait a minute, what does that mean? That means that many respondents find it very easy to talk about Jesus or to talk about what they believe, and yet they're going to stop short and hesitate of calling someone or trying to persuade someone to actually adopt the same faith. In other words, sharing their faith does not mean evangelism for many younger Christians. It means talking about what Jesus means to me, what Jesus means to me. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges that we face. This is, in case you were just wondering, this is not a sign of hope. When faith becomes personalized in a consumer society, evangelism becomes controversial. The idea of converting someone, of trying to, to, to lead someone to your faith sounds arrogant and closed-minded. And I would just add one additional problem here. Hell doesn't seem to be on the horizon. For the church-going millennial, in a lot of these research and these studies and surveys, the absence of any thought or mention of hell as an eternal reality, you know, something spoken about by the apostles, something warned about by Jesus Christ, that reveals a deficiency in discipleship. And look, I'm glad that the research shows that younger Christians say that we, you know, we want to take Jesus' message seriously. Okay, that's great. But do we take all of his message seriously? We should shudder at the church that has forgotten how to shudder about hell. I, I don't know how you can take Jesus' message seriously and miss that glaring, that frequent aspect of his teaching. And I know among younger generations at times, you know, it's, it's, it's popular to, to mock old school revivals and, you know, fire and brimstone preachers and all that, but... We just better be, take care that in the process we're not mocking Jesus himself. So this is a very important issue that I think is going to deserve more attention in the future. So here, if there's a sign of hope here, it's that younger Christians say they want the undiluted message of Jesus and they want to take it seriously. Unfortunately, though, apparently one of the most serious aspects of Jesus's message has been overlooked by younger Christians. And I think that leads to a diminishment in the sense of urgency that we have about evangelism. You know, who's to say what the future holds for the church in the West? We may be on the verge of a, of a new dark ages for Western civilization. You know, we could be entering, could be in a period of decline or decadence as a culture. We, we may be on the verge of the greatest revival that the world has ever known. We may be in the final days before Jesus' return. We could be several thousand years away from Jesus' return. I often thought it fun to think about this. What if historians in the year 9000 AD refer to our era as part of the early church's history? No, the point is, we don't know the future. We don't know the future, but we know the Lord of history. And Paul wrote his most joyful letter, the letter to the Philippians, he wrote it from a prison cell, from a prison cell. How, why, how was that possible? How could he, why could he do that? Knowing all of the challenges that they were facing and, and seeing his own chains, you know, how could he command them in the midst of the, those challenges? How could he command them to rejoice? It's because no matter how dark the circumstances may seem, we are fundamentally an Easter people of hope.
The darkest times are the moments when hope comes into its own, when hope shines as the piercing light that it is. Hope is what leads someone to, to soldier on, especially in, in, when there's good evidence or bad evidence. It doesn't matter. The evidence is because even if people would think the cause is lost, hope, an Easter people of hope, us becoming that, being that, that is what allows us to maintain faith when we have good signs about the next generation and big concerns about the next generation or when things are working out the way we'd expected or when things are not working out the way that we'd expected, to rest assured in the coming victory is hope. And that is the kind of hope that grabs the attention of a world in darkness. So look out, friends. Hear the words of Jesus. Open your eyes. Look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise this morning because you are the God of our forefathers and mothers in the faith. We give you praise, Father, because you are the one who has directed history. You are the one who has been intimately involved with history. You are the one, Father, who set into motion a plan in which you sent your son to enter our time, our space, and to bring redemption to your people. And so, Father, we, we give you praise this morning and we express to you our trust, our faith, knowing that you hold our future, knowing that you are the God of our ancestors, you are the God who holds the future of our descendants, and you are the God who is with us in the present. And so, Father, we thank you for the hope that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we entrust ourselves and this generation to you and to your good purposes. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.